Right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the LSE's tonight's event. My name is Vili Lehdonvirta. I'm an associate director of the LSE Innovation Co-Creation Lab and a visiting scholar at the LSE Asia Research Center. Um, it is a great honor for me to welcome Ms. Pingfu to the LSE. Um, Pingfu is a highly respected American high-tech entrepreneur, uh, the president and CEO of Geomagic, and uh, the Entrepreneur of the Year 2005, awarded by the Inc. magazine. But Pingfu is also a Chinese exile, one of the millions whose lives were disrupted by the Cultural Revolution. And her thesis on the consequences of China's one-child policy that led to her personal exile from China also led to um, deep political consequences. And in this sense, I like to think that Ms. Fu is actually one of the most influential social scientists of the post-cultural revolution era China. Um, and her absolutely touching story of, of her transformation from uh, a Chinese girl caught in the midst of revolution to an American mass customization pioneer is recounted in her new book, Bend Not Break, which will be available outside the venue after the talk. Um, for those Twitter users in the audience, I've been asked to, uh, to say that you're, you're invited to use the hashtag LSEPingFu. Tonight's event is being recorded and will be made available as a podcast on the LSE website, assuming that everything goes smoothly and there are no technical issues. Um, and as, as usual, there will be a chance after the lecture for you to put your questions forward to Ms. Fu. But for now, please join me in welcoming Ms. Fu to LSE. Thank you. Thank you for coming to this lecture in a snowy day and winter. I, I wanted to design this talk in three sections, and the first one is my story. The second one is the entrepreneur story of starting Geomagic, and then the third one is about the digital and the physical world that, that we live in, and all of which kind of talking about the stories that lives in the two extreme spectrum, and, and I, I like to be in between. First, I'd like to play, um, let me see, does this need me to do that? Just play a, what my Shanghai when Papa When I was a young girl in China, my Shanghai Papa told me, bamboo is flexible, bending with wing but never break. Your ability to thrive depends on your attitude. 
taking everything in stride with grace. It's as though he knew challenges awaited me. So this brings me to the first part of the talk. Let me bring you back 40 years in 1966. I was eight years old. I was living in my Shanghai family. We had a large house in what's called Manhattan of Shanghai. The house was built by my grandfather, who was a banker in the 1930s. And I have five siblings who are all older than me. I was the youngest one. My parents couldn't love me more and they call me Ping Ping, which means Little Apple. And, and in 1966 is the dawn of Mao's Cultural Revolution. I noticed something going wrong. I was still too young. I, I didn't go to school yet. I noticed that people, the teenagers goes into other people's house and the neighbor who is a German suddenly disappeared. And my Shanghai Papa was criticized as a revisionist, but I didn't quite have the grasp of what was going on. One day I heard this loud noise and boots marching into our backyard. I thought they came to my parents, and I thought our house is going to be turned upside and down. I was in my grandfather's library, which is where I love to spend my time. I was called a bookworm. Heard my mom's voice downstairs. She was kind of crying, and she said, she is so small. So I stick my head out of the library to look, and then I heard the red god said, she's there, catch her. And I ran back to the library, but it didn't take more than a minute for them to come up to catch me. And that was the day I was told my Shanghai mama was not my birth mother. And I told her, tell me, you're my mom. And she said, don't fight, that's true. And I screamed, you're lying, you're lying. Just last week, you told me I was your favorite. And she said, Ping, don't fight. And I was taken away from the home I ever knew. I didn't even have the chance to give my mom a hug. I was put on this really crowded train and being sent to Nanjing, which is a city 300 miles south of Shanghai. That's where my birth parents uh, lived and worked. I, I, I kind of visit them a couple of times. My Shanghai mama told me that I was so special, it took two mothers to bone me, and I believed her. So when I got to Nanjing, I was just a little too late. I saw chaos out on the street. I saw thousands of people and then truck uh, coming by with a lot of people on the truck and big dust. I was little, so I, I crawled on the other people's feet and got to the front, um, in the front, so that I could see anything. And, and my mom, my birth mom, spotted me on the truck and he, she screamed, Ping, please take care of your sister. And, and I just thought they were going to be, be gone for a few hours. Um, little did I know they would be gone for years. And a few, few hours later, I was led to 
this ghetto, which is the old university college student dorm, and assigned a room on the second floor. And it was in there I found my little sister. She was four years old. She must have been crying for hours and hours. The room was a total mess. Students have gone, and the room looked like a garbage can. Now, before that, I was living in a three-story French-style mansion. The only shining spot was under her feet because she was kicking so much that she literally polished that dusty concrete floor. And her eye was so red, I thought she was going to go blind. And that day, I lost parents who raised me, parents who bone me, and I became surrogate mother to my sister. And what following was kind of unimaginable. First, we were being forced to eat what's called a bitter meal, which is animal dumps and tree trunks and cooked in a pot that is not edible. And then I, I and many other kids were called bastards of black elements. Our parents were not even people, they are elements. Um, we were told that we were born with black blood, and our parents have committed sin to deprive other people for good life, and we were here to um, redeem their sin, sin or crime. And we were forced to observe teacher being killed. I saw teacher being thrown head down into the dry well. I was told that if you ever dare to say anything against the Communist Party, that would be how you will end your life. So. And, and there was no adult supervision in, in the dormitory that we lived, and there was no water basin in our room, there was no toiletry, there was no kitchen, and we were very hungry for many days. And there are little acts of kindness. There were neighbors risking our life to put food outside of our door, but I didn't know who did that until 10 years later. And then quickly, the communists didn't like the chaos, so they organized the older children to work in the factory. Mao said that we, are, we should be educated or re-educated by farmers, workers, and soldiers. And I was kind of younger children in a group, so I didn't initially go to the countryside. I went to the factory to work, and I built radios and speedometers, and later installed lights in the factories, and also went to countryside. Um, to learn how to plant rice and vegetable, fishing, so on and so forth. When I was 10, one day I heard somebody screaming and say, Ping, your sister is in the water canal. Um, I went out and saw her paddling in the water canal like a, a, with a dog paddle. The water wasn't very deep, but she was only six, so it was too deep for her. Although I didn't know how to swim, I jumped in to try to save her. I pulled her out, and then we walked back, we walked really fast back to the dormitory. I pushed her into the door. I said, run home, run. So she ran in, and she was spelled, but I wasn't. And the, the red guards, there were maybe 10 or 12 of them. They pulled me from all directions, and they kicked me and until they pushed me to the soccer fields, not very far from the dormitory. And then I heard them screaming, said, beat her. And calls me names, I, I've been kicked like a soccer ball 
a soccer ball on the field and be before I knew um, I was gang raped and I passed out. I was cut by knife and I had, later I had probably 40 stitches. I was left on the soccer field to die. And I didn't remember what happened, but when I woke up from, un from uh, unconsciousness, I was back into the room. I heard there was a nurse um, in the clinic saved my life and, and brought me back to the, to the room that I lived. And my sister went out to bag food to feed me. And I lied there listlessly for about a month. There was no parents around and there was no adult to consult. And the physical pain may be really bad, but what's worse is the emotional pain that followed. Very, I think not very long, I was, I was called broken shoe. At 10 years old, I was a ruined woman in China. But I didn't even understand. I, I, I didn't understand sex or rape at 10, but I knew that there was shame. So that was, that was my first few years of life. And then when I was 13, my mom was released and she came back. Um, before she came back, the only thing I could do to express myself was to write a journal. I wrote letters to my two sets of parents. I didn't even have an address to send to them. So I wrote it on the backside of the communist propaganda, hoping that it's not going to be found. Um, so my journal was my only friends. My journal was the only place I could express what's happening to me and my emotions. But at 12, the Red Guard found my journal and they burned it. They burned it right in front of me. And I saw my best friend died with that fire and I thought life is not worth living. I really wanted to jump into that fire, die with my journal. But someone behind me grabbed me really hard, literally digged his fingernail into my arms and said, there's a better way to die. It's very painful to die in the fire. I didn't even turn my head to see who saved my life. But from then on, I developed a skin rash to writing. Literally, if I pick up the pen, I would get a skin rash. I would have that kind of emotional reaction to it. So writing this book was very hard for me. And it's really, I didn't write it for who I am today. I write it for the nobody I once was. Um, so let me fast forward to end of Cultural Revolution. That was 10 years later. So I literally lived my first grade to high school through the entire Cultural Revolution. I didn't have much of the academic trainings. And then we heard uh, Cultural Revolution ended in 1976. We heard university was going to restart. So I started to study and very hard. I wanted, I wanted so much to go into college. And my dad was not clear, so I couldn't get into university when it first opened, which is 1977. I passed the exam, but I wasn't admitted. And then in 1978, I passed the exam again, and I was admitted to university. I really wanted to study, um, I wanted to be astronaut. 
I grew up in the aeronautic and aerospace university college. My dad was a professor uh, for automatic control for unmanned vehicle. Airplane wing was my sliders. But I didn't have any choice for what I can study. Um, I was assigned to study Chinese literature. And my mom said, ah, Ping, don't go to study Chinese literature. You're going to get in trouble. Um, but I wasn't going to listen because I so wanted to go to college. And I went to, went to Suzhou University and studied Chinese literature. And that was really great. That was, that was such a liberation. That was such a great time. I couldn't believe reading novels and going to see a play. You call that homework. And it was also like the most liberal time of China because right after Cultural Revolution, there was incredible burst of ideology change and, and then freedom of thinking was allowed. So it was like the best time of my life. But very quickly, I got in trouble again. I was the chief editor of our university's magazine and one of the communist members wrote an article called uh, comparing Mao's Little Red Book with Bible. And that was published in our magazine and that got me in trouble and been thrown in jail for a couple of weeks and, and got the black file of four antis. I had like anti-communist, anti-socialist, anti-progress, whatever. Um, but that passed by and I was allowed to stay in university other than I had a, like a not very flattering fire, file in my record. And then Song, four years come by, I was graduating. I saw um, we were asked to write, uh, write a thesis because I wanted to go to graduate school. I thought I was going to pick a humanitarian topic, not political topic. I heard that baby girls being killed in countryside due to the one-child policy. So I thought, well, I'm going to go do some research on that and try to call equality between women and men. I went to the countryside to do my research. What I saw broke my heart. I saw hundreds of baby girls being killed right in front of my eye. I saw baby being tossed into river when their umbilical cord still fresh. I saw baby being put in plastic bag, suffocate to death, and thrown into the garbage can. And I couldn't remain silent. So my thesis got picked up by Chinese newspaper and Chinese government at the time actually called for stop killing of baby girls and called equality of man and woman. But they didn't realize that was going to be picked up by international press. And when international press picked up that news because it was the first time Chinese government actually acknowledged that widespread killing uh, was happening in China, um, there was outcry on human rights violation. And that embarrassed the current government, which is Deng Xiaoping, had just come on board and was trying to uh, open up China. And that was an embarrassment to the current government. And that inquiry led my arrest. So I was arrested again. That was maybe 100 days before graduation. I was walking on the campus and someone walked behind me, put a sack over me, and said, don't scream. 
Now, I did not know that was why I was arrested, because we did not have access to foreign newspapers, and I didn't know there was an outcry on human rights violation. I was just putting this act, driven to a prison cell, and they actually put me in a death row cell with no windows, no water, no lights, um, for three days and three nights. I thought my life would be ended by right now when my life just had turned around, when I just started to enjoy to have a future. But I learned not to question that, because all, because all my life I've seen killings and abuse never for a good reason. And I thought my sister is older now, maybe it's okay, I will die. But fortunately, Cultural Revolution ended and no one could find any fault on my action. But the, but the government didn't know what to do with me. The local government didn't know what to do with me. So I was released three days later and told to go home, wait for what to do. So it's kind of like arrest at home. I waited for two weeks and I was called back to the police station again. And I was told to leave the country and never come back again. So I was run, running from my life. And I didn't know where I would land. I applied several places and got a visa from the United States very quickly. And I, I knew I was heading to USA. At that point, unknown was better than having a life doomed in China. And I have no idea what's awaited me. Um, I, and it's like your life just turned around and suddenly you get thrown into something again. I tried to learn English. Um, I tried and tried and tried. By the time I landed in San Francisco, I only remembered three words. And that's hello, thank you, and help. Three very helpful words. My mom used all of her savings, bought me a ticket from Shanghai to San Francisco. And I took all my savings, bought a traveler's check, which is $80, US dollars, traveler's check, so I can buy a connecting flight from San Francisco to New Mexico. That's where I had a visa for studying English as a second language. When I landed in San Francisco, the ticket price changed. And it was $85. And I didn't know that because in China, there's price fixing. And within 12 hours, it was more expensive. And I was penniless. I was standing in United Airlines counter, helpless, and an American man gave $5 to the counter so I could buy my ticket. And that was my first impression of American, that people are generous and warm. And I couldn't believe it. Someone didn't know me would give me money to buy my ticket. What I learned is, Wayne Dodd always err on the side of generosity. Maybe $5 didn't mean very much to him, but it meant a life to me. So that's how I got to um, New Mexico. I learned, I very quickly learned English because I knew I had to live here and I can never go back again. I lived with my English teacher, babysat for his son. Meanwhile, I was learning English. I realized I couldn't study literature. I thought maybe I'd do comparative literature. I can't because my English was too poor to study that. And plus, my English teacher couldn't find a job. And I needed more marketable skill. 
And I didn't have math and science, so I didn't think I could study engineering, so I asked around, what could I study? And one student said, why don't you check out computer science? It's a new field. And I said, what's that? He said, well, that's man-made language. You use it to make stuff. I said, great. I'm good with language, and I know how to make stuff. That's what I'm going to study. And so I went to study computer science, and interestingly, very quickly, of course, I realized that I wasn't a very good programmer, and the first class I learned was calculus. I was following along just fine when the teacher was teaching calculus until one day he was putting fraction on the blackboard. I have never seen fraction in my life. He was putting something like 3 over 4 plus 5 over 6 equal to something. So after class, I asked him, I said, what's that? He said, he didn't understand my question. He says, can you repeat your question? So I pointed to the friction. I said, what is this? He said, you never learn fraction? You, you don't know fraction? I said, I've never seen it in my life. He says, go back to high school. And I took it very literally. I went to get high school, check out the high school math book in the library. I didn't find it. And I checked out middle school math book. I didn't find it. I found it in second grade math book. So I, I, I checked out the entire math book from first grade to high school and put it in my room. And I studied calculus during the day and studied math at night. And one of the students, really, there's a lot of smarty pants, he said, Ping, you really don't need to do that. There's something called calculators. And you just need to like learn what you don't know, but most of the things you can do with calculator. That's true, actually. You can do calculus with a calculator. <laughs> and so I, I learned my math that way. Now, I would say that when I grew up without formal education and I learned by doing things, I did have a very strong self-learning skill. So I have a lot of practice for that. Um, I also realized when I was studying computer science, I was very good with software design, and I wasn't very good with programming. And in the early days of computer science, most of homework are projects. So I would gather like the best student in my project, and I would do software design. And I had no idea software design was actually a higher job than the programmers. Um, since I wasn't very good with programming, I do everything to encourage my teammate to work with me and, and to do the project. And, and things that didn't come from science and problem solving, I always designed the project more practical. So in the logic class, for example, we were asked to design a smart light, smart traffic light. And most of other team would do it on the paper and they put formulas. And my team, we went to Radio Shacks and we bought transistor resistor toy lights, transets, and we built a smart light. So when we go to do the presentation, we showed how the smart light works and how the car goes, and the professor loved it, gave give us A+. And from then on, I had no problem to recruit really smart students to work with me. At that time, I thought that was called survival skills, and I didn't know that's called leadership skills. So survival and leadership has a lot of correlations. So that brings me to the second part of the topic, which is how I started Geomagic, um, how I went on the entrepreneur journey. After I graduated as a computer science 
student, I worked for a startup company. One thing led to another, I worked for Bell Labs. I ended up in University of Illinois at Supercomputing Center. And the reason I chose that job was when I went to, inter uh, part of it is because I met my husband, and other part was because I was interviewing the job, and they had this lab called Renaissance Experimental Lab, was founded by Jim Clark of Silicon Graphics, and they were working on Terminator 2 Judgment Day. And I was like, you call that job? Okay, I'll take that. I don't need to be paid, I'll take that. Um, I did get a pay cut to go to university to work on computer animation because I kind of feel like that's my calling. I always loved art meets science and, and I'm a very visual person. So I went I went, went to work for the supercomputing center and the first project was doing the animation of Terminator 2 Judgment Day. And then, um, so that's the 3D model of T1000 that got melted into a puddle. And luck seemed to follow me and then I hired this student, his name is Mark Andreessen. And he didn't like all the math I was doing so I said, why don't you write a browser? He says, what's the browser? And because he's a user interface developer, so we talked about how much time we've been spending um, managing public domain software, and we're always typing the internet address, which is such a boring job. Why don't you write a browser so people can click and, and download the software? That's kind of how we started the browser. Over the time, the browser got developed into a more visual representation. We found www from CERN, so, um, and then eventually we brought our entire university internet because three million people trying to download Mosaic at the same day. At that time, you just can't handle, uh, internet couldn't handle that kind of volume. So three years later, uh, Mark graduated and went to start Netscape with um, Jim Clark. And I went to Hong Kong to help to start um, a mini supercomputing center. When I came back from Hong Kong, Netscape went public uh, with $7 billion market cap and no revenue. So the whole market goes crazy. That's the, in, that's the irrational exuberance of the internet time. You know, Jack Welch was talking about destroyyourself.com, some microsystem says weather.com. Suddenly every company becomes dot-com company. And the university said, well, Ping, what's the next killer app? Uh, I don't know. Well, they brought in venture capitals, consultants, lawyers, you name it. We, every day we were talking about what's the next killer app. And my boss got really irritated. He says, why is all this talk nobody do anything? Well, because we're all 10-year professors, right? <laughs> so I said, okay, I'll, I'll start a company. I had no idea what starting a company meant. And I thought naively, I was going to go out and start a company and transfer technology to that company and then hire a CEO and then run back to university and do what I love to do. But that doesn't happen that way. Once you start a company, it's kind of like giving birth to a baby. You can't just put it back. and It didn't work. Um, so I started Geomagic and since I was doing animations and movies, so the natural first the first natural thing to do is to go create sculptures, you know, national monuments and things like that. And very quickly I found, 
although the project is incredibly meaningful and useful, and you, you can't make any money from it. And this is a technology lab at Geomagic. I used to create shapes um, using dots. Every dot makes sense. Dot either is uh, center of atoms, so you use it for molecular modeling, or dot could be a star, so you do cosmology analysis. When I started business, everybody was using the software for industrial um, applications. So there's tons of scanners, so some of them showing in that picture. People use that to capture image of any object we see in the real world and then try to create a digital model from it. Maybe some of you have heard Invisalign. Um, that's, that's one of our invention, which is straighten teeth with our wires and brackets. So you scan people's teeth and then you create the initial model, which is the teeth that kind of having some issues. And then you move them using computer animation software until it's a perfect smile. And then you compute each two weeks of the teeth, how they move, and you 3D print the mode. Then you um, create the, the aligner over the mode. You ship it to the people, and they wear it. Every two weeks, you wear this aligner, supposed to be the shape to um, two weeks later until the teeth are strengthened. So that's, that's one of the first application, mass customization application we did. This is a 2008 uh, World Cup uh, soccer championship. I just happened to be in Zurich and I was, I think, co-sponsored by, by Switzerland and, and Austria. And at Zurich train station, they scanned those players' head and made a body too, and they made 18-foot-tall um, players in the train station. And I, I feel like a midget next to them. Um, when I went there, I realized they were using our technology. And I realized when you create technology, you put it out there, people use it for all kinds of purpose. Maybe you don't even know that they're using for it, like this was one of the case that I didn't know what people were using it for. So that brought me to think about how I want this company to be. Um, I had a vision statement for Geomagic that is to advance and apply 3D technology for the benefit of humanity. And I always thought about creating a company where social consciousness and business go hand in hand. Now, maybe that's because I was brainwashed by both the communist and the capitalist. And <laughs> I was trying to combine the two. But this was 15 years ago, before the Renaissance movement of social consciousness in business happened after that market in the 2000s. At that time, when I was thinking about social consciousness business, I felt like completely misfit. Uh, we had investors in the company. There was constant debate. Uh, why would you have social consciousness? Your for-profit company, you know, P&O is all what counts and gross is all what it counts. It's like the, the measure of success is the percentage of growth you have every year and how much profit you make. And I, I wanted the measurement of success to be the contribution of what the company can do uh, for, the, for, for the society or what we can enable. And I said, well, I don't really want to create a huge company. I'd rather to stay as a technology enabling company 
and then helping other companies to grow big and then let them have the problem of hiring a lot of people and managing it and I could manage a company not, that's not too big and as long as it grows reasonably and as, as long as it's profitable, I could spend more time on innovation rather than spend time um, day-to-day operations. So that's kind of my utopian idea of how to run the company and it was not very popular. And meanwhile, there was an undercurrent of digital and the physical world that's, that's happening, which is more in the internet side, right? If, like people started to talk about your digital self, like a second, your second self. And what I saw was, interestingly, we humans have always been very, very good in expanding our physical self. We can't fly, we build airplanes, we can't remember a lot of numbers, we build spreadsheets. You know, we, we human beings building tools to extend our physical self for millennials. But the limitation of human advance is really in our mental self. We were not able to extend our mental self. But when the internet came, now we suddenly can have this collective wisdom. We could have million people working on the same problem. Um, we can extend our mental self to the computer. And I'm not really talking about cosmetic surgery of your brain, but like my GPS is kind of a mental self in some way because you know, I don't have to remember the maps and tells me where to go. And, and I literally would panic if I lose my smartphone because I feel like my whole life is on my phone. It's not really true, but it does feel that way. And my digital self works on the social network, whether or not it's on the Twitters or Facebook, when I'm sleeping. Uh, even though I could say that's not me, but people in the world who seemingly connected to me, either they are my real friend or virtual friend, think that is me. And that's just the reality we're living in. But I wasn't very happy with just having information as a digital, and I wanted to see how I can connect the technology, or the internet of things to, the, to, the, to our physical life. You know, how can I connect the physical world that we live and then the digital world that we, we created? And how can I combine the two? So that was really the passion of me, running Geomagic. And, and I keep saying manufacturing is the backbone of country's economy and we don't eat e-food, we don't sleep on e-bed, we don't drive e-cars, so we can live without Facebook, but there's a lot of things we cannot live without. Um, people just think I'm crazy because at that time, all the hot companies are digital companies. Um, it's, you know, you turn, you, you, you turn all atoms to bits, and that's where money is. And I keep saying, how can we turn atoms, can, to turn bits to atoms so that life can come back? to the full circle. That's when I saw Chuck Hall demonstrate 3D printer. And I was like, oh my God, that was 15 years ago. I said, that's the next big thing. And I really want to combine the internet technology with the century-old hand craftsmanship. And back then, I didn't know why I thought that, but that's the company I started. Today, when I write a book, when I look back, it was really natural because I've been spending 15 years or 20 years on digital technology, whether or not it's computer animation or turning all atoms to bit, um, or you know, writing mosaic code that becomes internet browser, 
um, that was like, like my now life. But I also spent 15 years in my youth working in the faculty, and that's kind of my subconscious life. And so it was very natural for me to think about combining internet with <coughs> manufacturing. And what's the application? And I do believe 3D printing is going to be the next big thing. It's as big as steam engine, as um, Henry Ford assembly line, and as internet. Because it's the first time that we have a technology that can create things, that can make things locally, and it's complexity free. So it doesn't really matter you're printing a cube, as simple as a cube, or you're printing Mount Rushmore. It's the same complexity to, to, to click a button to print. The, com the, the difficulty is actually in the content itself, not in the act of a print. So this is very similar to uh, desktop publishing revolution. 20 years ago, we couldn't even imagine to print our own book, our own, own cards. Today, we don't think information is digital or it's printed on the paper anymore. It's like it's just given. Whether or not a magazine is published as a print form or it's on the screen, it's one of the same thing. What differentiates it is the content. It's what people wrote, what it's, the, it's content. And the content is unique every time. And then once you have the content, you can either display it or print it. In the future, the product will be made that way also. So product will be in the software code, and it can be produced locally. And why that's important? If the product is fabricated locally, you create job locally. You create better service locally. And you have that interpersonal relationship locally, like we human always had. And you can send the digital code of the design across the sea, and you don't need to. You don't need a gas. It's it's much cleaner and greener. And one may think custom-made product is more expensive than mass-produced product. Maybe for screws and fasteners, you know, things that are just demanding to be the same. But not for the things that are that shouldn't be all one size fits all. In fact, today, if you look at product that's being built, very little cost is in material and labor. Most of costs are in the waste of inventory, shipping across the sea, retail shelf space, and the product that's being built nobody ever needs or want. So those are the waste. And if 95% of the cost is the waste in or, or advertisement, you know, if you think about all this waste in today's mass production model, none of those actually contribute to anything that we use. What's contributing is the people who makes it, people serve you, or the material cost. And that's less than 5% of the total cost. And that just, there's just something wrong with this picture. So that has to change. And if I look at a developed world and developing world, for developed world, we can only bring job back if we innovate. The job is not going to come back if they are commodity and they are dependent on low-cost labors. So by innovating, we can bring those jobs back and locally. And they make sense. It will be cheaper. It will be greener. It will be better. And if you look at developing world, say China, they don't need to be world dumping ground, nor do they need to be world polluters. They have 1.3 billion people 
living, rising um, standard of living, and they can be great consumers for for other products too. And if I would walk into Walmart, if I see something made in China, I want them to carry Chinese culture and Chinese authenticity. I do not want made in China to be American junk. It doesn't make any sense. I go to Shanghai, I go to Huai Hai Lu, which is like Fifth Avenue of New York. All of the high-end furniture were made in, Ch made in USA, and they, they made by the North Carolina furniture companies that is about running out of business. And they, they, they built like incredible high-end ornate furnitures for Chinese customers, and then they import those cheap, fall-apart furnitures to America and sell it to us. <laughs> There's something wrong with that picture. So I'm, I'm a very active today in helping to change that. I think we had Henry Ford 100 years ago. It was exactly 100 years ago he introduced assembly line and said, I don't care what car you buy as long as they are black. But today, we don't have to do that. With internet technology, with software, with cloud computing, with combination of internet technology, with the traditional manufacturing, things coming down assembly line does not have to be all the same. In 21st century, company will win if they understand it's always customer of one and global resource of seven billion or more. So it's always customer of one. So geometric technology is touching full spectrum of industries. We have industrial application like turbo machinery, automotive, medical. Yeah, I like to tell this story about how technology and innovation can connect one thing to another. I told you I wanted to be astronaut and I couldn't study that. And in I think five years into Geomagic, we got a call from NASA, and NASA said um, Columbia disaster was because the underwing shield tile didn't get de detected, the heat went in, and they blew up and killed all astronauts. And we have this discovery uh, shuttles going up. We have a payload that deals with this problem. We need your help to create a new way to detect and repair the damage of insulation tile. I was like, great, that's exciting. So we put 3D imaging system, 3D scanner, on the NASA space shuttle with the robotic arm. And once, when, when you have shuttle goes to space, there's always something will hit the shuttle. There's always damage. What they did before was if there's a, a, a damage, usually they're pretty large, like a cradle. Um, the space worker would go out with a glue gun, literally, and they would squeeze this liquid into this big hole, and in the space it's really cold, and they get they frozen, uh, and and it's very hard to say I repair this or not. You know, would they fall up, the pieces fall apart, or do you seal the whole thing? And a lot of time it takes hours for them to do. And now what we did was we scanned the the damage, the negative damage, and then we sent the data through satellite down to, down to uh, earth, uh, down to ground, and compute the repair, which is the opposite uh, shape of the damage. 
do the CFDFEA analysis, you know, the, the wind tunnel analysis, do the computation of the cutting two paths and send two paths up to the space station. In the space station, they have an NC numerical controlled machining that ca they can cut this um, insulation tile in the, in the shape of repair. Now the space walker goes out, take this because it's custom fit, put it in, it's exactly in the opposite side shape of the damage, seal it down, and you know it's safe, it's guaranteed repair. So that was the technology we developed for NASA, and it's today in every space shuttle and in every space station. It's a standard procedure. And the interesting thing was, then a couple of years later, I got a call from a VA hospital in Waterloo, and that was when Bob Woodruff was uh, injured in Iraq when the, when the bomb exploded next to him, and his head has a hole that's big, right? They scanned his head and um, tried to see how they can help him. Initially, they put a flat plate on his head, and, and if you have seen his picture, his head looked like a knife cut it in the side. And so the, so the goal was to, to create a medical titania plate not only fits into the hole of his skull, which has a lot of jagged edges. You can't just sand somebody's skull to a smooth shape. And also to have the symmetry of the other side of the head. So we were called and said, hey, this looks very similar to what you did with NASA. <laughs> you got that right. <laughs> and it's true. So it's the same technology that we developed for NASA repair of the um, Insulation tile repair, uh, use that for repair Bob Woodruff. And if you see him today, you couldn't even tell one third of his skull was blown away. And he looked completely normal, beautiful, doing the repair again. So you could say, yeah, you know, NASA and Bob Woodruff, those are one of the kind thing. How can you make a business of it? It doesn't look like you can make any money. You know, a year later, I got a call from a dentist who said, well, I saw the news about your NASA's work and your Bob Wardrop's work. Do you know, like, this looked just like tooth cavity. You know, what about doing digital dentistry? I was like, aha. No, there may be people never go to doctor in their lifetime, and there's no one never go to a doctor in their lifetime. And there's a lot of people on the earth, and there's a lot of people being born every year. So that is a big market, right? Some of you may have gone to doctors, uh, dentists today, that there's cheerside system, whereas a digital imaging looks like electronic toothbrush, and it basically scans your teeth, and or scan the stumps that den dentist prepared for you. The software compute the crown crown will be milled on the chair side and put it into your mouth. If the if doctor is good, it should be 30 minutes. No biting into impression, no second visit, not a lot of drilling, and you're done. You're walking out. So silent, no drilling, complete fit dental, that sounds really good, right? Um, it's not populated everywhere yet, not because technology is not there, 
but it's because insurance refused to reimburse it. So if insurance would reimburse it, you would all have pain-free, drill-free dental treatment. Wouldn't that be nice? So, so the same technology today is being extended even further. So if you call those a life-saving technology, we extend it to lifestyle. Now, Debbie is an amputee. If you look at the um, prosthetic legs today, they look like airplane landing gear. They're very high-tech, and they allow you to run around, but they look, surely look ugly. So Debbie said, could you make something beautiful for me? And, and I asked her why. She said, because I want to feel beautiful again. I want to be proud of my legs. I, so we asked we ask her, what do, you, what do you want? She says, can you make me a fishnet? So we scanned her good leg, and we made a fairing for her um, prosthetic legs in the shape of her human morphology, but made it more beautiful. Because if you make it look real and it's plastic, it's kind of spooky. Now we made her two sets. This, this one is the, the fishnet, and another one was wrapped with leather. Uh, I don't have a picture here, um, but it matches her handbag. <laughs> and we also had um, Chuck, who was a Harley Davidson bike, biker, and in accident he lost his leg. And not only he lost his leg, he also lost a tattoo on his leg. So we, we built a new leg for, for him that was the same material as a Harley Davidson bike, and we put the tattoo on it because he had the same tattoo on his arm. So you can't tell where the machine starts, where the human ends, or where the human starts where the machine ends when, when, when Chuck is on his bike. So that's kind of like singularity arrived. Right? Um, today, we also got involved in heritage preservation. You know, I talked about at the very beginning of the, the, the starting of company, I went out to do that and couldn't make any money. Now the company is successful. Uh, we got back to involved in those again. Uh, we're doing 500 UNESCO registered uh, heritage sites because they are either deteriorating or uh, some, some of them in danger of destruction because of war or asset rain. Those are our collective memories and collective treasure. So we owe our new younger generation or future generation to bring this forward. And this is what I mean by starting a company with social consciousness and what I mean by contributing back, like measuring the success by your impact, not just growth and profit. You recognize what's that, right? Well, in UK. Um, you see my shoe? <laughs> That's a different pair. Um, the idea is you can scan your foot with just your iPhone and have the shape of your foot, and you choose a style and, and order a pair that fit you. So the, the, the pair on my feet was designed by Yana from Freedom of Creation, who's my friend, an industrial designer. And this pair was displayed in MoMA in New York as, as, as the exhibit. And I just simply uploaded my foot 
digital foot and say, Yana, make a pair that fit me. And, that, and because it fits and because it's a lightweight material, it's a linen, you know, it, with all this geometry on it, so it's very lightweight and it also have a gift. It's a six inches heel and I literally walked in those shoes in the trade show for 12 hours a day. And people can't believe it. They go like, how could you walk in those shoes for so long? I said, well, first of all, it fits my arch. Second of all, it's very lightweight. And third, it has a gift. Where do you find a pair of shoes like that, right? And it's cheaper and faster than making shoes the traditional way. So here's a little video to show you 3D printing. So you all know how 2D printing works, which is inject, deposit inject on a piece of paper. And 3D printing, just like inject, instead of depositing ink, it, it deposits material. And there's more than 100 material available, metal, ceramic, plastic, um, rubber, you name it. And then in each layer, it deposits the material. Some of them are very fine, like the one that I made shoe with is industrial strength um, printer that's also used to make custom fit hearing aid that sits in your ear canal, uh, air, air um, parts for aerospace or automotive if it's a small round. Those are very refined, so the material is deposited in like one-tenth of your hair size in particles, and they are laser solidified. So they use laser to solidify it. So imagine if it's a space, if it's an empty space, you don't solidify it. And if it's a shape, you do. And you do it layer by layer until it's built up. So that's how 3D printer works. And that's why it doesn't really care about the complexity. It just basically... If you take any shape, you cut it in layer, all you see is wiggly lines or straight lines. And that's where you use laser to solidify it. So that's, that's how, um, how it works. I was going to play you the next video, but I think I'm going to hold on to that because I didn't like the YouTube keep putting on advertisement. So let me just talk a little bit of, about a few life lessons that I learned. Uh, in life. One of it is behind every closed door, there's always open space. Like in my life, every time something happened to me, it feels like thought just shot on me and a different world opened. Now, I didn't know at the time that was going to happen, but it just seemed like in my life journey, I didn't speak English, then I studied computer science, I started a business. I couldn't stay in China, I came to the United States, I live in American dream. I mean, it goes on and on. And also in, in terms of technology, right? You go from NASA to, to the hair, to the dental, to whatever. It just seemed like there's always a different opportunity that's different than what you think. That's one thing I, 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 I mentally think it's a very good metaphor. The second thing which is related is I think of life as a mountain range. It goes up and down, and at different peak, it has different view. So if, you, if, if in your life journey you think of life as a mountain range, you would lead into a more rich life. But if you think your life has to only go up and cannot go down, then you would stay at one peak and you would only see one view. 
So in order to go to another peak, you have to go down. You can't, you can't always go up. So I like to think of that because I like to think about moving forward rather than moving up. When I came to the United States initially, I went to study a lot of things I go through, like affirmative actions, you know, there's a lot of things helping women to grow. But they always use the metaphor of going up, like glass ceiling and corporate ladders. And it's really hard to go up, and there's very short distance you can go. And going forward, word is your oyster. So I, I like to use that metaphor as, as a way to think of life. And third, I wanted to leave this to you, which is about happiness. Um, people ask me, how could you live in a life with so much trauma and feel so optimistic? You know, one is your, when do you arrive? I would say I never arrive. Life is always a journey. And, and sometimes people ask me, like, what is your milestone? What is your turning point? The fact is, there's never really a milestone and turning point. It's always accumulation of little things. Your turning point or your aha moment is always accumulation of your constant pursuit of happiness. Life is messy and human is messy. We can't really control what's going to happen to us or what life is going to throw at us. They're always going to throw a curveball at us. You all know that. Everybody's life is a story. But what I come to realize is that I can design how I feel about it. And I do control what I do every day. So if, if, if I can manage my emotional response to what happens to me, and I can manage every day to be an interesting day, then I can live a very decent life. And I don't need to really think about success and all the things. I don't know how to measure that. So what do I measure when I'm not happy? I, I give three simple words. I call it pleasure, flow, meaning. So pleasure is little things you do for yourself. You know, go to a theater, have a good meal, get a massage, whatever. Go to sports. That makes you happy and makes you feel good. And flow is the psychology concept of you love what you do so much, you lost track of time. That's when you're in flow. I use flow for my career, right? If I love what I do, I, I lost time. I know I'm in the, I want to be in the flow with my career. And meaning is to be part of something that's bigger than yourself. And I find it very useful to think in that way because if I'm not happy, if I feel stuck, I can ask myself what, which one is missing. And I, am I not taking care of myself? I have too little pressure or do I hate my job? I'm, I can't get myself in the flow. Or do I feel so irrelevant? Even I have everything, I'm happy, but somehow I feel invisible and irrelevant. Then you could find something bigger than yourself to do so that you could feel relevant. And which one is missing? And then you can just work on that. And I find it to be a very simple way of thinking about life and it gives me fulfillment every day. So thank you. Thank you very much, Ms. Fu.
Now, um, we're going to have some time for Q&A. And in fact, I'd like to start by posing you questions of myself. Would you like to? Uh, and um, then after the Q&A, there will be uh, opportunity for book signing. So um, thank you very much for the very insightful talk. Um, I was thinking that in the same way as at Suzo University, um, you thought you'd pursue a humanitarian thesis project, not a political project, but you ended up, you found that in fact it was deeply political. Mm -hmm. Isn't there, in the same sense in what you're doing now, um, you are pursuing a, a technological project, but in fact it, it sounds like from what you are uh, saying that in fact there's a deep political element there in the way you want to, in some ways, reorganize society. For example, you mentioned in the book um, that we could um, sort of get rid of wasteful mass consumption where everyone consumes the same thing that doesn't really fit them and just now you talked about uh, traditional uh, craftsmanship and how we should uh, preserve that kind of local values. So have, have you thought about um, in, in explicit terms what does this kind of political future look like that Geomagic is pursuing? Well, that's a good question, actually. I, um, I was never interested in politics, and I wasn't even aware of politics when I first came to the United States. And then when I started entrepreneurship, and I always said I'm not political. Um, but like what you said, inevitably, whatever I do end up to be political. And, and I even today, I'm special. Uh, government employees are working at DC and advise White House on entrepreneurship and innovation, working on immigration reform. So I spent a lot of time in politics. But what I what I learned in politics is that um, there are execution branch of politics, which is trying to actually do things, set policies that are productive for the society, and as political branch of politics, which is helping election and uh, helping to win an uh, election. Um, I stayed on the executive branch rather than the political branch. Um, executive branch generally doesn't matter what you do. It uh, doesn't matter who wins, you stay because they always need someone to do that. The political branch usually come and rise with whichever the party wins. That's how it works in the United States. And I also come to learn that policy working, setting policy is very important. Uh, part of it that I, I would say it's kind of a maturity of myself um, by learning and doing, and also at different stage of the life, I wanted to contribute different ways. And I find policy making make the kind of contribution that I couldn't do in the commercial run. So I end up being political. In that. I understand. Thank you. This is a sli slightly uh, uh, even cheap shot, but you know, there's talk about at, in the United States about gun control today very much, and um, obviously this kind of uh, uh, vision of a future economy where we very much have our uh, personal control over means of production. Uh, it, it empowers us to do all kinds of things, but then there's also this question of how do you socially sort of control and, and regulate that kind of production. So have you, have you had discussions around that or have you thought about that? What does this 
uh, kind of technology mean for things like gun control or, or other sort of social control of the economy? Right. Um, what I would say is human evolution or human history has always been good against evil. That always happens. Of course, like when 3D printing gets hot, the very first thing that comes into news is about, oh, there's two kids in the college can print guns. Yes, it can print guns. That's true. But the printer doesn't shoot people, and the gun doesn't shoot people. It's the people shoot people. So it's always good against evil. I'm actually glad that this happened early because I always believe big success or innovation go hand in hand with big failure. It's the big failure cause us human to innovate and to find solutions. Um, I do believe that there's more good than evil. Maybe I'm a dreamer or optimist, but I don't think I am in that sense because if, if there's not more good against evil, the human race would be wiped out already. Thank you very much. Now I'd like to um, <coughs> open the discussion to the floor. And um, would you wait until the rowing mic comes to you, state your name of, and affiliation, and uh, please try to, since we don't have too much time, try to address questions to Mr. Fu rather than, rather than uh, presenting your own mini lecture. So uh, let's, let's say I think uh, gentleman over here, I think it was among the first, yes, you with the purple shirt, yes. And then back there. <coughs> Hi, thank you very much. Uh, you mentioned that uh, Geomagic is a, you're trying to make it a tech enabling company. And I just wondered where you thought you saw the future of uh, 3D printing going, given that you said it was, uh, you wanted to create a sort of the ability for software, the production to be in software design and that you could send it around the world. Do you think it's going to be something that's open source or is it going to be like many of the other companies or sort of industries in, in tech that start out open source and end up being dominated by a few big commercial players? I think there will be open source and there will be non-open source. Both will exist. Um, but what will happen is open source will help to democratize the technology or drive the price lower, which is always a good thing. And then you also need the commercial companies who may not be open source but have the resources to make the technology more accessible for, for end users because open source tend to stay at a very techy, very early adopter stage, so I think we, we need both. In terms of where it's going, I'm very excited about this. It's not just about the product that we are building today, like you can see. Um, for example, one of the company I'm giving advice for is um, 3D print leather and meat without killing cars. I'm very excited about that. They use stem cell, um, tissue scaffold, tissue engineering, printing the scaffold so that you can grow the meat, which is which I call the vegan meat, but with same nutrition. One call can feed the entire nation and you don't need to have slaughterhouses. So that kind of thing has really huge um, impact in, in, in our life because it's not sustainable if, if three billion developing country people wants to eat steak like we eat will be in big trouble. It's fascinating. Printed meat. And then over there. Yeah, hello. I'm Heide from uh, Bain & Company. Uh, you mentioned some uh, advantages from your technology, uh, how it would be cheaper and how it would save on uh, shipping, how it would be faster, etc. Could you elaborate a bit on that? 
Um, the reason I ask is because basically you're putting the production locally um, where you lose on scale and on specialization. So how can you be cheaper and save on shipping if you still need all the raw materials being shipped in for all the things you can do locally? And if you lose the scale effect uh, and the standardization of those big factories which do thousands and thousands of the same product uh, the whole day. Thank you very much. So I don't think, I think we don't lose scale. That's, that's, that's what makes me exciting. Let me give you an example. For example, hearing aid industry. Um, hearing aid industry, before they start to use 3D printing, is a 100% manual investment casting process. You go to a doctor, they put a silicon mode into your ear, and that's the shape of your ear canal, and they make a silicon mode, which is the negative shape of your ear, and they, they take the silicon mode, they cut it down onto the shape of the hearing aid shawl, and they investment cast it, and the hearing aid shawl needs a canal, needs a canal, they put like a wire there and a hand pans over, pull the wire out to create a canal, then they stuff all the electronic inside. And then they make a separate battery door with batteries, blah, blah, okay. The high-end in-the-ear hearing aid, which is the most popular one, costs $2,000 per ear. That's $4,000 per ear. The best hearing aid maker are watchmakers from Switzerland. And they're very expensive and they're very hard to find. So most of hearing aid company was thinking about shipping the hearing aid to Asia to make it. And the problem is it takes very long and the hearing aid offerings for older people. And when the hearing aid come back, they may not be there anymore. So <laughs> you kind of want this thing to be immediate. So we introduced the 3D printing for the hearing aid show. And you, you do the same process. You put the ear, uh, you put a silicon mode into the ear and you, you take it out, you scan it, and the computer automatically compute the most optimal way of creating the shell, putting the canal in the digital shell, create a battery door, and print them at once. And we can print 500 shell in one batch, not one at a time, right? So if you do unit cost of those shell, they're much cheaper than what I described before, with the, the traditional way of making it. And the digital design, so I asked them, I said, when you cut the shawl, why does it, why the skill is so hard? And the answer is, yeah, everybody can cut, not everybody can be sushi chef. Mm -hmm. So you need a sushi chef kind of skill to, to cut the hearing aid actually fitting your ear right. With the computer, I don't need to do that because I can analyze that. So a high school dropout can make 500 shawls a day compared to the skilled worker before can make eight a day, right? So suddenly you do not need to outsource. It's a lot cheaper to make it locally. So the, the reason there's a scale is that you can do just as many, but not, it can be one of the kind. It doesn't have to one all the same. Invisalign, for example, not only every treatment is individual to you, the person, but it's to every two weeks of the treatment. If you take eight assembly line of Invisalign and eight assembly line of Nike, Invisalign is two times more productive and half the price. It, it will be. It, 
once you get to mass production, it will be competitive, yes. Thank you. So it's not just about location, it's also about timing, real time. I think a uh, lady in the bro uh, sort of back with the red sweater. <coughs> and then the gentleman in the front after that, yes. With the purple hello. sweater. Yes. I, hello, I'm a student here. Um, sort of a follow-up on the previous question. You're talking about all the, the area which is somehow wasteful of like all the advertising, all the transporting and all this. But in a way, it's an industry that employs a lot of people. And imagining that 3D printing was to be really incorporated in loads of mass consumption products, how would all those jobs we recycle, I mean, how would, how would it really help employment? I think a different kind of job would be created. Uh, we used to be, even United States used to be maybe 90% agriculture, and then the machine comes and and not only 2% of people doing agriculture, a job went to other places, like industrial making machines and many other things, cars. Now robots coming is going to take some of the repetitive manufacturing job away. People ask the same question, how do you create jobs? I think, for example, if it's a custom job, service is much more important. People would be, your neighbors will make something for you. So there'll be a whole lot of engineering, design service job will be created. But we also need a lot more people to do all kinds of things. Like we don't know how to cure cancer yet. We haven't had a new transportation for 100 years. We, we there's just so many energy consumptions, green tech, there's so many jobs can be created that we don't even have skill set and labor to do today. Thank you. Then, gentlemen, in the yes. Hi. Although, Ken, I'm a clean tech analyst, but actually, my question was about the first part of your talk. Um, not everyone who went through the trauma of the Cultural Revolution left China, obviously. Uh, and maybe if I read the book, I find out. But what's, what do you have to say about maybe your sister or your family or people you know who stayed in China and and how that experience changed them still in China as opposed to coming to America? Good question. My sister also came to America. She also is an entrepreneur. Uh, she, has, she does retail business. And I have other siblings who, siblings who I grew up with um, stayed in China. Uh, they have a various success living in China, one, one is a coveted artist, another one was um, manager in the railroad station, another one was um, manager of Shanghai Poor Station. They all went on their life. Of course, there are also many, 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 many people in China who didn't go through education and living very, very depressed life. Um, I don't know I have a good answer on why, but that's not very different from here either. Then lady in the front, yes, and then I think, yes, perhaps then we need to let someone from the left side of the hall also speak. I'm Hi, I'm, I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> and one of the questions I have for you is, did you find a lot of challenges being a woman and also being from another country and moving forward with your ideas, were they very accepting of you um, 
given the fact that you were such a leader in your field? I would say that I had challenges being an immigrant and I have challenges being a woman, but it's more in my head than the pressure from others. Like when I was in the high tech uh, industry, I'm kind of a misfit. Not only does predominantly male, but they are also half my age. Um, so I'm, I'm an older woman in a tech field. But I didn't find any discrimination in, 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 in truth. I think everybody that I worked with is very helpful and respectful. But in my head, for a long time, I felt was misfit. So I went out to hire a male CEO, which didn't work out. I have to come back to save the company. Through that journey, I gained the self-confidence that I could do this. And being an immigrant, of course, you have language issues, culture issues, just like anyone who's first generation of immigrant. But then on the opposite side, you also have more drive. Like first generation immigrants come here to look for better life. So you have a drive to do that. You also got nothing to lose. There's no, there's no baggage. So we tend to take more risk. We tend to change careers. We tend to do anything that comes our way. So, so it always have two sides. Um, gentleman over there and then. Uh, my name is Wilson. I'm a Chinese student studying in the U.S. and doing exchange here. Uh, my question is, with your root in China and your connection to President Obama, how do you see your role in connecting the young generation and in innovation of China and the U.S.? Thank you. Um, with my... Yeah, I, I understand. Yeah, with my um, experience in China, I had hard time to connect with China for a very long time. Um, today, I think of myself more as a global citizen. I understand my 15 years of atrocity does not define China, just like Holocaust does not define Germany. I do believe China and the U.S. both have awesome responsibility for its own people and for the rest of the world, being two very large economy, a large country. We need them to compete, and we need them to cooperate both. So if in any way I can do to help China and the U.S. to co-compete in this earth in such a way that helps human to help, helps human and society to move forward, I would like to do that. Okay, I think we have time for two more questions. Gentlemen over there, and then, yeah, I have to be a lady in the, in the front who gets the last question. Yes, please. Uh, thank you very much. I'm an alumni here. Um, firstly, it's a brilliant book, and also I love the shoes, so, so thank you very much. Um, I want to ask your opinion of... of, of your views on China right now, is it really opening up? Is it changing? Has, is your 15 years of, of quite serious problems and depression and, 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 and the so-called cultural revolution, has that tainted it or is it still there? And secondly, what is your vision for China as someone that has now lived in the US for 28 years and, and, and would you like to be portraying that much more? 
Well, China has gone through incredible change since I, I left. Um, it, it's definitely opened up a whole lot more. Is it completely open? No, there's still, um, it's a still one-party country. It still doesn't have good legal systems. Uh, it still has suppression of opinions that happens quite often, actually. Um, I do have a lot of hope for this generation of new leadership that just take over because many of them are like me who have lived in two worlds. They have gone through the Cultural Revolution um, and they are my generation. Um, so I think if China would be opened up, this generation of leadership is the one that will do it. I have a lot of hope that this will happen, that they have more compassion and understanding of, of human conditions. Um, China will become a very important player in the world economy. Um, China still have a lot of its own issues. Uh, I saw a Chinese program where they put some priority for the next five years and it was very refreshing. So here are the four. One is not just grow um, GDP, but grow higher quality GDP, right? Which means mm -hmm. higher education, better jobs, more, more innovation. Second is to combat corruption because corruption is the barrier for progress. So they didn't say, let's have a better legal system. They just said combat corruption, which I kind of like. It's all four smart goals are measurable. And the third one is the migration problem. U.S. have immigration problem. China has migration problem. So this means developing inland and so on and so forth. And the fourth is clean tech. They didn't say clean tech. They said we don't want to be the world polluter, right? Again, measurable. So, so those are the four things that China is saying, China current leadership saying that they want to do. I really like it. <laughs> because they are clear, they are understandable, uh, people know how to contribute if you have a clear goals. I hope that we have that in the United States. Spoken like a true entrepreneur. I think time for last question, uh, lady in the front. Thanks, just from London. Um, I was interested that you said you had a call from NASA and you had a call from a dentist. We talk about innovation. How do you? What are your policies from for encouraging innovation from inside your company, or where else do you look for it? And how does that connect with what you mentioned about immigration laws in how doors might be opened for innovation? Yeah, we have 27 nations represented in a company with 120 employees. So it's a very multicultural. I find that to be incredibly exhilarating to embrace different culture and ideas. Um, that's related to immigration. We are very much there to help people who wants to stay and, and do that. In terms of innovation, I think of innovation as uh, invention realized or imagination realized. So it's not about just having ideas. It's about having a lot of ideas and some of them become real. Right. That's, that's what in innovation is about. So we encourage that. We set aside a day, a time for people to do that. We celebrate innovation. Um, 
I'll carry that same same thing to the national level. So it's about it's about um, capacity building. You help people to learn to to grow. It's about access to capital in the nation wise. In company means you allocate budget for people to innovate, um, and it's about celebration and recognition. Um, that's what we do specifically in the company. Okay, before I thank uh, Ms. Fu, I'd like to mention one more time the book, Bend Not Break. I read it myself. I can hardly recommend it. Many of the things we've discussed here today are, are covered in great detail in this book. So um, I think uh, for me, and, and I'm, I'm sure for you too, it's been a wonderful opportunity to have you here tonight to talk to us. So could I ask everyone to please join me in, in thanking Ms. Fu for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you.